Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. This is the Real Estate Podcast, the intersection between the latest trends in real estate and its impact on our everyday lives. We're your hosts, Alex Norman. And Jamie Blonde, and you've come to the right location. The real estate starts now. In today's episode, Future of Mobile Homes, we explore the intersection between the critical need for affordable housing in America and the realities facing the communities that these facilities are meant to serve. We are honored to have as our guest today, Sarah Terry, an award-winning photographer, filmmaker, and journalist. Sarah's first film, Fumble Talk, the story of an unprecedented grassroots forgiveness program in Sierra Leone, premiered at South by Southwest in 2011. It played at more than 100 festivals around the world and won several prizes, including the Human Spirit Award at the Nashville Film Festival. Sarah is a producer, director, and cinematographer of A Decent Home, a documentary which follows the residents of several manufactured home parks across the country and examines the impact that a wave of private equity firm purchases of mobile home parks is having on its residents. The film is currently touring festivals around the U.S. The website is adecenthomefilm.com and all the socials are A Decent Home Film. Welcome to the show, Sarah. Welcome to the show, Sarah. Thank you, Alex and Jamie. So tell us a bit about yourself. So, so that's a, I'm a filmmaker, a photographer, a former newspaper reporter, and I'm just going to drop in something that lands right into the conversation. We were talking before the taping began about how the film had hit you guys in the heart and made you cry. And so what I'll tell you about myself is that my work um, is always guided by the premise that if I can reach somebody's heart in whatever story I'm telling, then I'm going to get a pretty wide audience. And from that group, there's a smaller subset of people who, if I've made them feel something, they're going to think about something a little more deeply. And from that group, there's the, the smaller subset, but the people I also really hope to be reaching. And those are the people who are going to do something. So I always kind of work in that in, inverted pyramid way to go from the heart to the head um, to action. Well, uh, Sarah, I was—I I think I told you that I was crying <coughs> in private. <coughs> um, you did. Crying <laughs> loudly. Um, Just saying. Got me crying now. <laughs> um, but uh, to, to be fair, I think you know there was there was important topics that you raised. When seventeen point uh, seven million Americans uh, actually live in a mobile home community, um, and that's roughly about five point six percent of the American population. And uh, which you pointed out in the film, uh, the realities of that is is that the, some of the largest communities in America are located in both um, Texas, probably the largest community in America, uh, second Florida, and then Louisiana. And you, but you. You highlighted your film in Colorado, if I'm not mistaken, and it's a powerful documentary, as you mentioned. Uh, it touched my heart and and Jamie's, and I highly recommend um, that everyone uh, who's listening to this podcast um, um, go check it out. But but tell us, Sarah, out of all the topics that you've documented in your career, uh, what made you focus on the the challenges in this community and with the mobile home industry? I, you know, my topics always kind of pick me. I'm a very intuitive person. I was a general assignment reporter and choosing to take on a long-term project in photography or filmmaking, which filmmaking definitely is. This film took six and a half years to make. You, I have to be drawn to something like really deeply. And I had thought I'd made my first two films and it was several years later. Thought, I, you know, somebody asked me when my, what my next film was going to be. And I said, I don't know. I may not have one in me anymore. It was a friend from the Sundance Institute and she sort of rolled her eyes at me. And um, the next morning I was reading an article in the Guardian 
about Frank Rolf and Mobile Home University, which is in the film. And in that, which is outrageous enough, which we can talk about in a bit, but the article also included the fact that, that billionaire Sam Zell owns more mobile home parks than anybody in the United States. Billionaire Warren Buffett owns the largest mobile home manufacturer and the two largest lenders. And at that time, this was in 2015, the Carlyle Group, one of the largest private equity firms in the world, had just started buying up parks. And um, I had already at that point, been for I mean, I think the wealth gap is the biggest issue facing us. Um, I think it's the face of everything. I think it's, it causes climate change, racial injustice. You know, it's it's kind of behind every ill in many, many ways. It's the face of the face of greed. I don't care if you have money, but it's what you do with your money. So I just was like, I was outraged. I, I, I was. There's this big question for me. It's a business story in many ways, but to me, it's a human, deeply human story. And all I could think was, who are we becoming as Americans when housing that's on the lowest rung of what we call the American dream is being bought up by the wealthiest of the wealthy? And six weeks later, I was doing my first film uh, filming trip, which was actually at Mobile Home University. And it's interesting that uh, for, for our listeners, uh, I think a little bit of the color in the sense that I think, at least for me, I used to think of mobile homes were actually real trailers on 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 wheels, you know, Winnebago's that people would park when they were going to uh, to the to see the Grand Tetons in a national park. Those are I, RVs. I, I, RVs. Right, those are RVs, and I, I didn't realize I didn't realize that these mobile homes these were permanent. People don't have to understand these are permanent homes that are in a, and these these are these where these people live, and and the issue that you were bringing up in the movie is that it's not that they're just that people are rolling up these facilities, people are buying these parks. It's that they're jacking up the rent to the point where these people can't afford it, and that's the real issue. Correct. Hmm, that's exactly it. Because you're really vulnerable. I mean, what other version of home ownership in America uh, has you own your home and you rent the land you live on? So, if without protections, which most mobile home park residents have none, you usually have more protections if you're an apartment dweller than a mobile home park resident. So, it, lot rents can usually be raised by um, in, in most states by as much as a um, landlord uh, park owner wants to, and sort of as often as they want to. There are very few protections and thing which you said about discovering that mobile homes like oh they aren't the thing you pull behind your car you just have to like trace the history you know the history of mobile homes actually begins with the wealthy um when cars started up they, there were no hotels there were no places to stay as you went along the side of the road so they began kind of turning there's some great archival photos in the film that show you this they began sort of tricking out cars and bands to become like mobile homes and then for a long time they were mobile there's you know all those great legends in the 30s and 40s. It's so much a part of an American restlessness and um, people, oh, I'm trying to think, uh, From Here to Eternity, James Michelin wrote um, the screenplay for From Here to Eternity in a mobile home park. You know, so it's a, it's part of our history in that, in that wanderlust way. But around the 1970s, 60s, it changed as the manufactured housing industry wanted to become more respectable. Manufactured housing is the more official term for what we're talking about. And they began building homes. You know, once Levittown became popular, they realized they needed to be more, you know, in place. So that's when mobile homes began being created um, in such a way that you can't really move them. You know, they are usually delivered by massive trucks from the factory and they um, are put, put together on site. And to move them costs thousands of dollars. So it's a, um, Frank Rolf actually says, I don't, it's it's um, not in the film, but I have, <laughs> 
hey, there's so many amazing quotes from Frank Roth. Um, he's like, you know, you know what? People can't afford to move their um, their homes. So I guarantee you, this, the people who live in your parks will just go down you know, the street to the local Walmart and get a few more hours of work each week to cover the rent. Increase. Can you just clarify who that is you're referring to? Who is that person? Frank Rolfe is the co-owner of Mobile Home University and the co-owner or the fifth or sixth that changes largest manufactured uh, mobile home park owner in the United States. And he's the guy who teaches all these kind of mid-level investors and wannabes, you know, how to buy parks, uh, to buy and sell them to make a profit. I mean, I've literally stood in the room where he says, you know, don't plant trees. You have to spend money to water them. Take out all the trees, take drain the swimming pool. It, it, it's like make the most money you can while providing minimum services. You know, there's a quote um, that I use a lot. And that's from Mahatma Gandhi, who said, uh, the greatness of a nation can be judged by how it treats its weakest members. And, you know, I, I have to say that it that quote resonated with me in watching the film, because I think affordable housing is such an important part of America. Um, having giving, having a, a, a place for people to live affordably is is truly American in a lot of ways. And I think, you know, it's, it's whether or not it is in the urban city or in the suburban sprawl or, uh, or urban sprawl um, or rural sprawl, uh, people need a place to live. And I think y- your point about uh, in the movie in particular about where these communities are located, how uh, in some cases cities are built around these communities and thus raising the value of the property and forcing these communities to relocate. Um, is a powerful one. And it um, housing crisis in America is one of the ages, right? That's been going on for, for decades. Every so often it, it heats up and we're right now in the middle of, of one, particularly um, due to the pandemic. And we're, we're going to see this challenge happen again. Five years ago, you, you, you created the film, but this is an ongoing issue that I think needs to be addressed, needs to be thought through. So when you were making this film and you were talking to folks, did you get the sense that what was happening in this community is happening everywhere else and, and the fight that is going on in this community will just continue in other places or is still going on other places? I mean, what did you, what sense did you get that, that this was a unique problem in one part of the country versus the rest of the, the rest of the country? It's happening all across America. There are something like 45,000 mobile home parks in the United States, and this has been going on. Once the Carlisle Group got in back in 2015, private equity firms from all over the world jumped in on parks and they've been buying them. There's one in the film called Haven Park, um, which my main stories in the film are in Colorado and Iowa. I also filmed in North, uh, Northern California at a park literally next door to Google headquarters and also at a small park in New Hampshire to give a sense of the national landscape. But no, it, it's it's like everywhere, and and wherever you know, private equity seeks a vacuum in capital, and and it found it in mobile home parks and what they could get from it. They're not occasionally a park is is um, rezoned for redevelopment, but but the huge majority of of these purchases are to keep the parks in place and just raise rents. Um, so they're increasing um, the value of of what they're getting. And, and providing fewer services. But I, I think there's a really important picture here. So like, that's the micro, that's the United States today. Um, and it's, you know, this particular crisis has been escalating for six or seven years. 
But it, this is so worth stepping back and understanding that it's taking place in the context of an economic narrative that is only 50 years old. So this is Abigail Disney's film, um, The American Dream and Other Fairy Tales, which just came out, uh, came out at Sundance this year, also examines this issue of economic inequity. And she was able to put backstory in it that didn't fit into my film. Milton Friedman started this. It's the idea that greed is good. The idea that the only social responsibility of a corporation is to make money for its shareholders. That form of economics took hold about 50 years ago, was magnified by trickle-down economics, became entrenched with neoliberalism, and it's just a narrative. It, it can be changed. You know, the idea that the only reason you're in business is to make more money I mean, I understand capitalism works that way. It's just generated to make money. I don't think capitalism as a system operates effectively unless somebody's injecting social conscience into it. But just go back and look at World War II America, post-World War II America, and the affluence that this country had and the, the, the well-to-do you know, stature of the wealthy, even though they were being taxed at 80 and 90%. People, their middle class had homes, unions were healthy. Um, it, 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 it just began that shift then to sort of go, oh no, as the rich get richer, everybody's gonna benefit. Well, how's that worked out? You know, and, and I want people to understand it's just a narrative and you can change it. You can inject into the conversation, um, gosh, is is greed good? What should we be doing? In your movie, uh, uh, you, you had Elizabeth Warren, Senator Elizabeth Warren from Massachusetts, which yes. actually, is, is actually in your film. I don't know if that was coincidental or she, or you asked her to come on. How did that happen? Because the, my next question is about where is the government and all this? But But how did Elizabeth Warren end up in your film? She was on her presidential campaign and she was in Iowa where the joke among Iowans is that is that like by the end of the primary season, candidates are bringing in your mail and packing your groceries at the grocery store. They're so present. Not cooking um, dinner Elizabeth at your house. Warren, <laughs> yeah, kind of. But Elizabeth, I mean, they're everywhere. They really are. I was, I've known that before, but I experienced it in this past campaign. Um and Elizabeth Warren came to the mobile home park. She'd been invited. Um, she she knew about this issue. She'd already been involved. She'd written a letter with um, Representative Lobensack. He's not in office anymore, I don't think. But they'd written a letter to Haven Park, the private equity firm, asking them to justify some of their expenses. So she knew about it. I mean, Cory Booker is in the film, too. It's It was amazing to sort of just have all these progressive politicians popping in. And they're both still, you know, on these issues. So yeah, so falling back on that, I noticed some of the politicians you had uh, were in favor of the transfer of ownership of the parks. Some, you know, and it gets to the whole point of you can't fight City Hall. Like I live right across from an empty lot that was supposed to be zoned for 15 floors, and they got approval to put a 45-story building there. And you know, we tried to fight it. We get lawyers, but you can't. These developers have all the money. The Carlisle they have all the money, all the lawyers. They they can make the, the political donations, and they get the government in their pocket. So where is the government, or what is the role in government here to to help to solve this issue? Well, the most important um, place to start is go to your local city hall meetings. Show up, make a lot of noise, ask about every time a, a housing development is being planned or a new real estate development. Go in there and make noise. That's what the residents of Denver Meadows, the, the park that's in the film, they did that for three years. They showed up at every meeting. And I'm not going to tell you how that story ends in the film, but I will tell you um, that because of them, the state of Colorado now has statewide laws that place the, uh, Colorado in like the top 
five or six states in the country with protections for mobile home park residents. This isn't a kind of, these, these are zoning laws that really happen at local and state levels. The only place the federal government really makes an impact is on Freddie, May, Freddie Mac and, and Fannie Mae lending policies, which are deeply in need of being revised because they've been making loans to private equity firms for affordable housing. So Haven Park has gotten the government's money to buy a park because mobile home parks are affordable housing and then to go ahead and jack up their rents. There hasn't been any check on that. So that's something that's going on right now at the federal level. There's certain people involved. Sherrod Brown, um, Senator from Ohio, recently did a congressional hearing um, that you can find on C-SPAN about the impact of private equity in the housing marketplace. I mean, it's essentially what we need to do is get private equity out of housing. And then there's a lot of other ways to approach that as well. But the basic question to me is like, is a home something that everybody deserves and needs to thrive and flourish? Or is a home a commodity that can be bought and sold by the highest bidder? Here in Los Angeles, 41% of the housing stock, housing stock, not mobile home parks, is owned by corporations. That's like they started buying up in the Great Recession. And they, they're, they're literally, just follow the news. Go look up private equity and housing and you will find it you know, like all over the place. There's a Washington Post just did a piece on, you know, this block used to be for new home buyers. Now it's for private equity. So it, it's like everywhere. So, you know, you think you make, make, a, make a really good point. I mean, private equity has always been known to go in and to either cut costs and improve profits yeah. for, for, for capital gains. We had a, very early on, we had a, a guest on the show and talking about uh, fresh water resources in, in, in the Great Lakes and in Michigan. And there was yeah. you talk about corporate uh, involvement in who owns the water. Um, and, you know, when you get to sort of natural resources and to your point, our American right to live and have a home, uh, you know, should profit uh, um, and interest and sort of commercial interest be be a part of that, and and I would say no, right? But it it, it only it almost sounds as if uh, the only front lines or the only line of defense is for people to spend three years um, petitioning, and it almost feels like it's it, it's not enough. And yeah, I, I think, and particularly when you look at it as a nation, and you you know, one town or one county by county. I mean, it's a lot of work that, ha- that has to happen among a lot of different people across a large uh, piece of the country um, that may not necessarily be on everyone's radar. And I think we all need to find a way to elevate this dialogue. But a question is, how do we do that in the most effective way? Well, it's interesting you mentioned water delivery systems because um, the, the a decent home just opened um, the uh, Big Sky Documentary Film Festival in Missoula, Montana, which is great. It was an amazing audience. But the Carlisle Group, first of all, affordable housing is a huge issue in Montana. I mean, like it is everywhere. But secondly, they were also really familiar with private equity firms because the Carlisle Group owned the city's water delivery system <laughs> at one point. And the mayor got it back by taking by eminent domain. So you're like everything is being commodified, and and it's I, nothing happens overnight. Nothing. We've this has been fifty years of creating the policies that endorse this. You know that are kind of like oh no 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 no. You know 
you got to let money do what it does or that's it's good for all of us. So it's going to take 50, you know, it could take 50 years going back. Like, I'm sorry if that's disappointing to people, but like get involved. Like what your life is, things you value are in danger. You know, what are you going to do about it? What world do you want to live in? One where corporations own housing or one where you get to? Well, I think there's got to be a balance between the ability for corporations to live as corporations and the ability of government to protect the the, the weak, the, the the people who can be affected in a negative way by by growth in the economy. Let's say the, and there should be the economy and there should be protections. You know, and Alex made a great point to to you know how you treat your the lowest rung of people in your communities is a is a real sign of what type of of community you believe in and, and want to have. Um, and and you brought up an interesting point about how apartment renters have more rights even than than mobile home people and 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 that triggered a thought for me which is because there is a there is a dichotomy there because on the one hand the government does a great job for example in new york city you can only raise the rent so much a year you can't just come in you know buy the apartment from someone else and then raise the rent 400 percent. there are rules and regulations to protect there are there's affordable housing there's government housing now one can make the argument that in some of these government housing the government doesn't do as good a job at maintaining as perhaps a private owner would because th there's no incentive for the government to do that but my point is is that it seems to me like if anything the government is nowhere to be found here i mean it would be simple to for, for all these states to pass a law saying you can't just jack up the rates of a mobile home or some kind of law that says over time you have to be able to get access to buying the land or something like that where where is that mo where is that motion coming from well where do you think the lobbying money is going i mean like money again you know right so in iowa um the, the manufactured housing association there has been given huge amounts of money um to the republican party and to the republican leadership in that state it's um the the iowa residents in the film know it more exactly but i think they'd given fifty thousand dollars to the republican party last year you see it in the film that space where the, the the legislation is about to go to the floor or into committee to be moved forward and it was pulled it was and pulled, yeah. That was because, as you hear the residents talk about it, was and the their advocates was because of the influence of manufactured housing money. So that's lobbying money there. And by the way, I just want to be clear: like I'm fine with businesses and corporations. I think capitalism as a system is a pretty efficient delivery system, except for the place we've gotten into lately with you know like on demand um, orders and delivery and production. But um, the business roundtable, which is the top what 200 corporate leaders in America. Last year or the year before, for the first time in, I think, their history, changed their statement of principles to say that a, a, a business's responsibilities also included um, their communities, not just their shareholders. So they're starting to get it, too. You can hear from some of the top business leaders talking about how out of tilt um, the system has become in terms of favoring, um, corporations, you know, come on, come on, like look at zero taxes paid by Amazon. Like you don't have to talk a lot to figure that out, but on housing, the issue is there's, it's so fractured, right. you know, between right. the city the, you, you said politicians, you're referring to that. One of the people you're referring to was the mayor of Aurora who's mayor. He's a, he tells, he tells you right in the film, he's a real estate, he's a realtor. He's been in commercial. Real yeah, that was stunning. That's a stunning years. moment in the movie. Yeah. I was like, what? You know, nobody was hiding these things. I didn't have to work hard, 
you know, as a journalist, much to my surprise, to get people to say some of the things they said. It's just, it, and to me, that was like the banality of the conversation. That's just the way it is, you know? So it's, let's talk about the, the community. Do you guys think I have an opinion, by the way? Like, <laughs> I, I, I wish you would, I wish you would speak from the heart to be much more. Yeah. Can I tone down a little? Yeah. I, I think that this is great, man. I think let's just, shift the gears a little bit in talking about the, the people, the communities, um, the people that are living in these, these, these homes. You know, when I think about, when I saw your movie, and there's a, there's a particular demographic that was represented, uh, but, you know, there's also this new trend of, quote, unquote, prefab housing where, um, you know, container homes, you know, it, and it almost seems like the, there's a reinvention of the mobile home park all over again, but instead it's, people, younger generations of people with jobs that, are, that, are, that think that, that, that find living like this is cool. Um, and thus they're, and it, it perhaps it's changing the narrative, but also providing more damage because it's, it's raising the profile in maybe in a negative way. Where do you see, you know, is this a, is this a benefit going forward in the future of, of, of affordable housing, of mobile home communities? Is the, the fact that there may be an aging down of residents in these parks, does that help or does that create more, more problems because it raises the profile or raises the, the, the median age or median, median income, rather, of these communities? Well, in some cities, it's the only affordable housing. So young people live there. Denver Meadows had young families, you know, people like 110 families, most of them young. It's a it was primarily Hispanic, Spanish speaking park, you know, people working three and four jobs. Um, So, you know, the park that's in the film that's right next to Google headquarters, um, Google employees live in that park because they can't afford to live in Silicon Valley or to buy a home in Silicon Valley or even rent. rent. That was one of the most stunning things I I heard in the film that that Google isn't paying enough for people. I guess it's the the whole area around Google has become so unaffordable. Exactly. Exactly. Silicon Valley. Yeah. Yeah, You see what's going on in Miami. I mean, for the first time, I think in January, home prices actually dipped because they had exploded during COVID, as Alex had mentioned earlier. And that's going on all around the country. And there's something else that's going on at the same time as as we see inflation picking up. These people are being being you know they have to live in mobile homes they have to be farther away from there they have to find a home that's affordable is usually much farther away from where they work that they would like so they drive well now gas prices are crazy so where you put your home and what where you can put an affordable home and be able to to put roots down and live is so important another way of taking reshaping that conversation, reframing it from like affordable housing, which can be sort of a right, left political, you know, divisive issue is the people who live in this community with the money they're being paid and the wages that they get, could they afford to live here? You know, why is, why isn't that possible? You know, I think there's a, a really important question in all of this, which is how much is enough? Mm-hmm. And one of the things I find is that anybody who lives in a mobile home park knows exactly how much enough is. They might not always have enough because they're working multiple jobs to pay their bills, but they know what enough is. A home where their family is safe and happy. You know, a car or two maybe to get to work, but not 10 houses, 10 cars, 10, you know, that we've lost scale. I think we're in a, a type of a um, more 
moral or perspective crisis in this country that keeps quantifying you know success by how much do, how much more can we get how much more do we have i mean one of my favorite lines in the film is when petra um who's lost her mobile home um says that she lived in for 18 years says when are the rich rich enough so i mean you raise a good point and i go back to this about the, the the future and the trends and where things are going. I mean, it seems as if because the, the as you mentioned, the, the the workers or knowledge workers that are at Google can no longer afford to live in their communities and they're going into these mobile home parks. It sounds as if mobile home communities will no longer become affordable. I mean, that's, that's the point both um, illustrated by greed, as you mentioned in the film, at the same time, there's also an issue related to demand. And if more people who are making $80,000 a year, $100,000 a year, find that they can't live in Silicon Valley, they're in mobile home parks, it's just going to raise the value. And so how, how, do we, how do we address this? Does this mean that we need more mobile home communities? Does this mean that we need to be thinking about, um, about land differently and how it's valued or how it's used or how it's distributed. I mean, what exactly, as we move forward and look into the future, what are some of the things that we need to be thinking about that will either allow us, allow our citizens to be able to live affordably or to avoid these problems that you presented in the film? Well, first of all, there are, I don't know of any new mobile home parks anywhere in the United States. I don't think any have been built in years. That's zoning laws. That's part of the stigmatization. And that, I don't know, maybe that'll change as cities realize, oh, wait a minute, that's a pretty good source of affordable housing and a fairly efficient use of land. Um, but again, that's a local government decision in that way. I think there's a, you know, a cultural mandate to that, that, that has to, we have to reorder our priorities, you know, around that. I wanted to acknowledge something you said, asked about it a minute ago, younger people are tending in this direction. They're getting, you know, living in tiny homes. You know, there's a there's a there's a desire to make less of an imprint on the environment. And that may be, you know, supporting a movement. Um, what's working so hard against affordable housing right now are things like NIMBYism, you know, not in my backyard. Um, it, it, it's just a major, I, I, I think about this a lot because I don't know how the conversation gets reset. I think that, I think it will. I think it, you know, you can see it bubbling, but it's like when I was in Montana, the Q&A that we did after the film, I had been talking with a young reporter that day. We were talking about Californians who moved to Montana, you know, because it was more affordable for them. And she's a millennial living in Missoula and she can't afford to buy a house there. So she'll have to move somewhere else. And then the New York Times a few days later had an article that was like the next uh, affordable city. It's already too expensive. So there's a really fundamental question here and that's how come we're all being priced out of affordable housing depending on what you're even you know maybe i my home is worth more in la than montana but like so i could afford to move someplace else but i'm displacing somebody there who's displacing somebody else like in the next city why is that happening like somebody's got to step back and untangle that ball and go is it because you know we don't want to talk about rent stabilization or rent protections. And is that because I don't know, is there too much like, you know, environmental or over-regulation in, in some communities? I'm, I'm a big believer in environmental regulation. So I don't want to like sound like I'm, I'm not, but it's like, what's, you've got to unravel that ball 
that's made this craziness. And of course, you're going to see the piece of that, which is that corporations are buying our housing, you know, which to me is probably the biggest problem there is we just haven't somehow made that taboo, you know, and they just are slipping it. Whenever you see a sign in your community that says we pay cash for your house, right? You know, that's a corporation. And you sell there and you're participating in the, the turnover of your community to a corporation's assets, not a neighborhood. You know, I, I, I say at one point in the film that I've understood, you know, people, the way they like to talk about these things is pressure on the land, you know, best use of the land, which I've come for years just kind of like, okay, yeah, whatever, pressure on the land. Da, da, da. It was like, what that means is how do you make profitability money yeah, profitability. from a piece of property? Not right. what is the value of human life? That's well, there. You know, Sarah, you, you bring up you bring up a great point about how how this shift will happen again. And I think what happens over time is like a pendulum. We've we've swung from one side to the other. And I think, like you say, young people, a lot of people like yourselves, messages that are coming out is starting to, to swing the pendulum back. I think we need more politicians to bring light to this to this issue. Uh, so more people are aware of it. I think you're putting out this documentary six years of your life. I, who knows how much in terms of finance? We're up to about seven but, now, just so you know, and it'll go into eight by the time we're done with our impact campaign. Like I just said, eight years. Don't ever correct the host again. <laughs> <laughs> like eight years. And I think it, it's people like yourselves, <clears throat> as well as shows like this, government government intervention, politicians getting getting more involved, that is going to move the pendulum. And like a pendulum, what starts as a little bit of movement as it starts to drop will gain momentum and will have shifts that hopefully sooner than 50 years or whatever it is, uh, the comment that you made, hopefully we will get to a point where, where we'll get back to the original idea of affordable housing, which it was for the for the lower rung of the community to have the same pleasures and, and security and satisfaction of being able to be in a home and own their home as everybody else does. Absolutely. That's exactly right, Jamie. So how, so I love the work that you're doing. How do we and our listeners help? Like how can we lean in and make a contribution to this cause and to this effort so that more Americans can have a place to, to live? Well, you know, thanks for asking about that. The film has a really ambitious um, outreach campaign. We are doing um, screenings mm, coming up in April. We're going to have three three screenings across the state of Iowa, kicking off with a festival uh, on the eastern side, then going to the capital of Des Moines and then to Iowa City. And then we're starting a year-long campaign in Iowa. Um, we're, I'm creating a short documentary at the request of activists there that we've been working with they can use to educate voters and legislators looking towards their 2023 um, legislative session. We are doing a mobile home park screening tour in Colorado. Um, everywhere time we show the film somewhere, we work with local activists to ask them, how can the film you know, help support you? Um, we, if you go to our website at decenthomefilm.com, we might still have a donate button there, um, but that's, that's a tax deductible space where we have a fiscal sponsor um, that, that you would get a tax deduction for supporting. We're still, we still need to raise about $75,000 to do everything we're hoping to do with the impact campaign. Um, and you can also, if that button's not there, I'm sorry, I'm not exact because we're just relaunching a, a much, an updated website with lots of bells and whistles, but info at a decenthomefilm.com. If you write to us, we can tell you um, how to donate to our fiscal sponsor, which the money comes to, to us. You get the tax deduction, the money comes to us to work on the campaign. Cause it's just, 
we're able to concentrate mostly on Iowa and Colorado because there are two main stories. But th- this work has to happen, you know, like e- everywhere. And uh, and we've got the connections now. And, and the other thing we're able to do with this work is we're connecting activists in different states who didn't know about each other. You know, like you asked, Alex, was this just one park, you know, that, like, or was it truly nationwide? I think sometimes people feel their park is the only park that's going through this because it isn't exactly a great big news, you know, item on a daily basis. So we're able to bring people together with that work as well. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for taking the time to come onto the podcast today to uh, uh, educate our listeners to this serious issue of, around affordable housing and manufacturing homes. And, uh, and we wish you success in your efforts and look forward uh, uh, to seeing more information about this topic coming up uh, in our lives. Thank you so much for being interested in it and for, you know, watching the film and caring about the issues and, you know, <laughs> having the bravery to let me on to uh, give you my very <laughs> strong feelings about it. But I'm sorry, that's what you get like this. I'm, the film is now out in the world. After six and a half, seven years of being quiet on it, I'm, you know, I'm all in. Everyone needs to hear this story, Sarah. And, you know, if we can help uh, both both Jamie and myself and all of our listeners can help you and, and the rest of the communities around the country unravel that that ball uh, and, uh, and allow people to live a better life, then let's do it. And let's do it together. That's great. And I'll just add a PS. We will be streaming at some point in the future. And I'll circle back to you all so you can know and let folks know where they can see the film. Outstanding. Terrific. Thank you very much, Sarah. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you. You've been listening to The Real Estate Podcast. Give us a quick review and rating on iTunes. Check out our website at therealestate.co and let us know if there are any new topics you'd like to hear us address. We love hearing your feedback. See you next week. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.